Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode from the Institute's Vault, we have an excerpt from a two-day symposium, Hannah Arendt Right Now, which explored the philosopher's impact on the 21st century. The 2006 event was held on the 100th anniversary of Arendt's birth. In the opening session, Jonathan Schell and Elizabeth Young Brule discuss Arendt's thoughts on the threat of nuclear war. Schell, who died in 2014, was a writer for The New Yorker and The Nation. His 1982 book, The Fate of the Earth, is a meditation on the consequences of nuclear war. Elizabeth Young Brule, a longtime member of the Institute, died in 2011. She was a doctoral student of Arendt's and author of Hannah Arendt for Love of the World, the philosopher's first biography. My topic this morning is going to be Hannah Arendt and the nuclear question. It might seem a peculiar choice because it's not a subject that she wrote a great deal about. There's no full book. There's not even really an extensive article. There's one called Europe and the Atomic Bomb, if I'm not mistaken. And it keeps coming in tangentially here and there. To my mind, not merely because it's something that I chose to think about, but it was a notable omission because as the in my view, the greatest political thinker of her time, and a life that coincided, or a writing life, I should say, that coincided pretty much exactly with the nuclear age. It was rather surprising. I formed some speculations about it that were almost certainly cockeyed, and I'm sure Elizabeth will be delighted to rebut them. I really wondered about this. My first speculation was that her first husband, Gunter Anders, did write about this quite a bit. And I thought, well, maybe she's sort of leaving it to him, doesn't want to step on his toes or get in trouble with him or something like that. I don't think it would be like her to do that. Another speculation I formed was that her great, great friend and, and in a way mentor, Carl Jaspers, wrote a whole book on the subject, The Future of Mankind, which she was instrumental in having published in the United States. And rather more plausibly, I wondered whether she sort of thought, well, he's taking care of it. I also quite honestly wondered whether she would have fully agreed with the conclusions that he arrived at in that book. I know I disagreed with them and actually took issue with him in my book, The Fate of the Earth, especially in his conclusion at the end of that book, that it could be justified to sacrifice the existence of the whole human species for freedom, or as he put it, eternity. I rather doubted, but I can't prove it. And she never said anything but kind words about that book, but I rather doubt that she would have agreed with it. But anyway, uh, this is all rampant speculation, probably nonsense. My curiosity did get the better of me one day. I was at a conference with her. I think it was about 1972 in Washington, a congressional, sort of one of those side conferences that Congress people have. So I actually put the question to her. I said, I'm curious if you think you might take up this subject or why you haven't addressed it. And her answer to me was, you do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's in your bones. Of course, it was literally in the bones of my generation. I wasn't so vain as to take that as a personal instruction. I understood it as a plural you, meaning that you of your generation, you and whose bones this was, should take it up. And it rather confirmed, but as you'll see shortly, I think wrongly, that she somehow did make a kind of decision not to go into it, at least not to address it head on. There are a couple of places where she does bring it up. One is in the introduction to On Revolution, in which she ponders the relationship of the nuclear stalemate to revolution. And very correctly, I think, notice, as history showed, 
noting that the paralysis of violence at the great power level through that stalemate meant that if political change was going to happen in the world, it would have to occur somewhere else, namely, as she believed, in revolution. And I think that's exactly what happened. It happened to be also nonviolent revolution, which was another track that she was on, especially in her book on violence, but actually throughout her work in, in that case. And of course, that's exactly how the Cold War did end, through very largely nonviolent change, revolution really, occurring within the Soviet empire, which actually turned out in a sort of strange uh, historical parallel to be as fully consequential in its outcomes, certainly, as the First and Second World War, which it resembled in every respect except that it wasn't a war. In other words, you had regimes changing all over the map. You had the end of a gigantic global ideological struggle and so forth. It was fully as consequential as the end of First World War or the Second World War. The other reference that I noted is in The Human Condition, again in the introduction, and that's a book that fairly screams out for a chapter on the nuclear question, because if anything has ever happened in history to alter the human condition, it was certainly the invention of nuclear arms, which revolutionized really the conditions precisely of life on Earth in a twinkling, because after all, it did bring our species within reach of its own self-extinction, so that to the individual death that we all face and have always faced, there was added the wholly new danger, of what I've called a second death, which would be the death of our entire species. And in that introduction, she distinguishes between the modern age, which she dated from the invention by Galileo of the telescope, and the modern world, which she said, quote, was born with the first atomic explosion. It's kind of an interesting not exactly sure how to interpret it, but certainly it's as if what Galileo set in motion centuries before had been sort of trickling down, so to speak, ever since then, and wound up with this actual event occurring right at the dead center of history that churned the modern age into the modern world. In other words, it was a world changer, no fooling about it. And yet, for all this non-mentioning and non-addressing of this subject, I found from the very beginning that her work shed more light than any other thinkers on the nuclear question. And in fact, there's scarcely a fundamental concept in Arendt that I find not relevant to this issue. And I would begin, of course, with that central feature of the whole business, which is the potentiality for our self-extinction, which has kind of faded into the background since the end of the Cold War, because it just doesn't seem as likely as it did back then. Although, actually, there are still 27,000 nuclear weapons in existence, so the technical apparatus, although reduced by about half, is still all there and, and ready to go if anybody should get it into their heads to push the button. In any case, this potentiality put right on the table the question, well, how should we think about this new dramatically new, radically new element in the human condition. And as far as I was concerned, her idea of the common world showed the way. A lot of thinking about nuclear danger has consisted of ratcheting up levels of fear, which certainly is appropriate within limits, but to my mind somehow missed the point. Because what nuclear danger does uniquely or characteristically is not so much to increase the danger to individual life, because arguably many other dangers 
like menaces more, such as car accidents, uh, medical things, and so on and so forth. But rather, the point was to understand what it meant to us that all of us together, our whole city, our whole nation, our whole earth, could perish. And this is where Arendt's idea of the common world was made to order. She distinguished it, of course, from the private realm, which was made up of, quote, the passions of the heart, the thoughts of the mind, the delights of the senses. And, of course, that ended with each person's death. But the common world, on the other hand, is, quote, what we enter when we are born and what we leave behind when we die. It transcends our lifespan into the past and future alike. It was there before we came and will outlast our brief sojourn in it. And she goes on, without this transcendence into a potential earthly immortality, no politics, strictly speaking, no common world and no public realm is possible. Now, many people had asked before her, although without perhaps using that phrase, what it means to live in a common world and what obligations we have to future generations and even, in a sense, to past ones. But what had never been asked before, because the question had never been concretely put on the table before Hiroshima, was what it meant that the whole thing, all of it together, was in jeopardy and what that meant for our life here and now. And to my mind, her idea of the common world offered the gateway into a fruitful look at that question. Equally relevant, and of course very much related to this, was her idea also developed in the human condition, her distinction between immortality and eternity. Her context was the difference between a Greek concept of immortality, that is a renown that lasts through the generations among posterity, and the Christian idea of eternal life, which of course does not depend on any worldly remembrance, but rather is something that indeed goes on after the world ends, at the end of days, and after the last judgment in the apocalypse. So the key thing, uh, as far as I was concerned, was that immortality was a worldly thing, whereas eternity was a heavenly thing. So no world, no posterity, no immortality either. And that meant that although she didn't say so, I don't think in the human condition, that immortality, although transcending individual life, was itself physically perishable. Of course, it was perishable in the sense that, that you might be forgotten or a country could be forgotten or a whole civilization. But it was now also physically perishable with the jeopardy to our species. And even in lesser atomic disasters, you can conceive of civilization being wiped out to the point where the memory of it would be lost. I once saw a bumper sticker that was highly relevant, I thought, to this question, and it did not say, we demand the right to survive. It said, we demand the right to be survived. And I thought that was very much to the point. Another key Iranian idea, one that she wrestled with and eventually rejected, was the idea of radical evil. As I'm sure many in this audience know, the reason she found fault with it in a correspondence with Gershom Scholem, she expresses these ideas, was she came to the conclusion that evil could never be radical, but only goodness could be radical. And evil, rather, was in a certain way superficial, not to say banal, as in the banality of evil, that later famous phrase, probably her most famous phrase. Evil was, as she said, like a fungus overgrowing the world. And yet that idea of radical evil, I have to say, did seem to me, and still seems to me, full of significance for the nuclear question. 
Its characteristic feature, she wrote, was that the damage it did went far beyond the victims of the evil. It was so extensive, radical, that it also damaged or destroyed the world's recuperative powers, like an illness that destroys the immune system. And here again, we find the idea of damage to the common world, that is, to what we all have together and what is available to us to seek to respond to or to in some way re redeem, if that were possible, the losses of horrific tragedy. So she wrote, quote, the true hallmark, close quote, of radical evil is that we do not know how to punish or forgive it, those being two of our chief modes of response uh, to crimes and evils. That is, we don't know how to respond, how to heal, not the victims who are gone, but the world from which they have been torn. Thus, radical evils, quote, transcend the realm of human affairs and the potentialities of human power, both of which they radically destroy wherever they make their appearance. And what I would put before you transcends human affairs and destroys the potentialities of human power more thoroughly, more radically, and clearly than a nuclear holocaust. And yet, as if to show that absolutely every shade of her thought was relevant to nuclear danger, even when she disagreed with herself, the idea of the banality of evil also seemed pertinent to me. And to state what should be obvious, but apparently is not, what was banal in the picture presented by Adolf Eichmann was not the experience of the sufferers, which were deep indeed, fathomlessly deep, but that of the evildoer, who is able, as she said, to act thoughtlessly, a, a very important concept for her, clearly. And Eichmann was certainly a paragon. She saw it visibly before her when she visited the trial, a paragon of thoughtlessness. And just such thoughtlessness, I suggest to you, threatens to overgrow the world like a fun cliff, literally, if nuclear arms were ever to be used, an event which is indeed sometimes, in a kind of echo of that word, thoughtless, unthinkable, thinking the unthinkable, and so forth. And perhaps it's precisely banal evildoers that are best to commit evil that is radical, to join the two terms, as if the emptiness in their minds and souls prefigures the emptiness in the world that they and their policies can leave behind. What is unthinkable after the fact appropriately is done thoughtlessly to begin with. Another concept, and in a certain way the most important for me, is her idea of natality. It's at the same time the most engaging and fruitful and rich and interesting idea, but also the most mysterious to me in her thinking. And it's also the one with the most powerful and illuminating bearing on nuclear danger. It's an idea that seems to live and acquire meaning really in the larger context of her thinking, so it's hard to sort of rip it out and explain it to her, but just in a sentence or two to state the matter baldly, she believed, and, and many of you will have read the relevant works, that human beings have a capacity to initiate actions, works of art, as it were, out of nowhere, completely unpredictably. And of course she's talking about freedom and says so, but she's speaking of it in a special sense, not merely as a power of choice, as when we decide which appetizer to order from the menu, but as a power of origination and creation. She wrote, quote, with word and deed, we insert ourselves into the human world, and this insertion is like a second birth in which we confirm and take on ourselves the naked fact of our original appearance. Well, I can't imagine a sentence that's more pertinent to the nuclear question, because inasmuch as extinction is a second death, 
which, when concretely defined, means the end of birth, that is, no new people being born, the foundation of a political order that lastingly assured continuity of life would be a true second birth, her phrase, a rebirth by which this second death was defeated. It would be an act of deliberate creation, counterpoised against universal destruction, a new beginning thrown into the scales against the end, absolute and eternal, with which we threaten ourselves. Now, finally, in this list of concepts, there was her account of imperialism, which I won't try to render at any length. And this brings us right up to date in the spirit of Hannah Arendt right now, because it hasn't until our day that the relevance of her reflections on imperialism to the nuclear question has become clear. Just in a word, she interpreted imperialism, and she was, of course, speaking of the imperialism of the late 19th and early 20th century, which occurred at the very heyday, previous to the end of the Cold War, of liberal civilization. But instead of seeing it as a kind of flaw or lacuna or something gone wrong, and that's if certainly something was going wrong, she rather saw imperialism as a natural outgrowth, something that proceeded from the very inner workings of liberalism and especially of its economic system with its sort of unstoppable and again kind of thoughtless, sort of brainless, unstoppable tendency to expand and to devour like a fungus uh, more and more of the earth. So it was highly interesting to me in view of her interpretation, which I find the most fruitful of imperialism, to see that when we arrived at that next great heyday of liberalism, namely the 1990s, when history was supposed to come to an end because of the, the problems of, of government had been solved, it was amazing to see that accompanying that even more dramatic and truly global, at least supposedly, it hasn't turned out this way if you look at Russia, China, Iran, and a lot of other countries, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, which was supposed to be really global in character. It was highly amazing to see that, once again, this was accompanied by imperialism, as if there were truly something in the genetic code of liberalism which led to imperialism. And suddenly that idea, which once was considered a left-wing libel on the United States, became a word of praise and admiration on the lips of right-wing admirers of the Bush administration. The administration itself didn't use that word, but of course its policies, as expressed in many documents, especially the National Security Strategy of the United States of America of 2002, published just on the edge of the Iraq War, uh, stating that there was only one model for national success for the entire world, namely our model, democracy and free market economics and a couple of other things. And to be imposed by force, by the sole superpower, etc., clearly this was imperial in substance, although the administration, only its admirers at the Weekly Standard and so forth, and Niall Ferguson and a whole raft of other people and Michael Ignatieff and so on, were ready to embrace the word. But, as I was suggesting, in addition to all those traditional elements, in other words, naked interest kind of papered over with all kinds of fine-sounding language, it used to be the three C's, let's see, they were Christianity, civilization, and commerce back in the 19th century. Well, those three have pretty much lasted. But there was the new element, and that's where the nuclear question comes in, because at the dead center, at least rhetorically, and I think that's probably true of the Bush doctrine, and even of the Iraq war, was the idea of rolling back nuclear proliferation. The Bush administration embarked on what I like to call a series of disarmament wars, 
And that was something quite new in history. And backing it up was what you might call a disarmament empire. In other words, an empire whose highest justification, at least as put forward to the public, was to actually roll back nuclear danger. Of course, there would be a few countries, especially the United States, and preferably only the United States, if it had its way, that would be having nuclear weapons of its own and threatening to use those, indeed, too, in this nonproliferation project. Well, all of that is in ashes now, but it was pretty interesting and pretty illuminating to me to see that this sort of liberal genesis of so much imperialism, after all, in the 19th century, the greatest imperial powers were England and France, which were also supposedly the, at the cutting edge of liberalism. And so also in our time, it was pretty interesting to see that an imperial bid was made by the supposed leader of, of liberalism, the United States, but with this final addition. But I'm repeating myself. So those are some ways, and I could go on much longer, but will not, about the ways in which her thought has seemed to me, really from the beginning, to be indispensable for understanding nuclear danger. Certainly, it has been so for my work. Well, you can imagine my utter fascination and a surprise when I received in manuscript, actually, from Jerry Cohn, who was the editor of this volume. I'm deeply grateful to him of her unpublished writings, The Promise of Politics. And here I found that she had indeed taken up the nuclear question. It was quite staggering to find it. In English, it's been rendered introduction into politics. I'll just spend a few minutes here telling you a little bit about what she has to say there. She puts the question, what is the meaning of politics? And further, does politics have any meaning at all? And lo and behold, the two great goads to this question are first, as we can well imagine, and as we don't have to imagine because she'd written about it extensively already, the rise and existence of totalitarianism. But the second, which she rates even higher in importance, amazing to see, is the atomic bomb. And she writes, quote, both these experiences, totalitarianism and the atomic bomb, ignite the question about the meaning of politics in our time. They are the fundamental experiences of our age. But there is a difference. Totalitarianism still permits a, quote, retreat, whereas, quote, the distressing thing about the emergence within politics of the possibility of absolute physical annihilation is that it renders such a retreat totally impossible. For here, politics threatens the very thing that, according to modern opinion, provides its ultimate justification. That is the basic possibility of life for all of humanity. Well, the question certainly did ignite her, for what follows is a dazzling but somehow disjointed meditation on the meaning and the very character of politics, which takes her, as it so often did in her published writings, back to Greece and Rome and to Homer. And in this book, so it seems to me, and here I have the world's top two experts on this, so, you know, stepping in where angels fear to tread... Jerry and Elizabeth, who's actually going to rebut what I now have to say, no doubt. When I read this, it seems to me, I see all the fundamental ideas of her future books kind of tumbling out and jostling against one another, sort of crowding the nest, so to speak. In my imagination, the reason that she did not publish this dazzling work is that what she really faced here was the rest of her life's work not one book, but actually six or seven trying to be born all at the same time. 
The manuscript itself, Introduction into Politics, does not stay with the issue of the atomic bomb. It gets off into all these other areas. It's as if she'd been, as I said, to use her word, ignited and sent off on her path by these two questions, of course, totalitarianism and the atomic bomb. And so it's as if she, what she does is she goes off on a long detour away from her question without ever arriving at the original stated destination back again, but including what Jerry calls, and I think it's right, a tour de force and one of the most wonderful passages in her writing, a meditation on the fall of Troy and the rise of Rome, as seen in classical texts, including, of course, Homer. But I won't get into that. But it seems to me also that her life's work is a little bit like that, because she never quite got back to it after calling it the most important thing in her published work. And I'm haunted by the question whether, very surprisingly, perhaps, given the topic, she would have gotten back to it had she written her book on judgment. There's some indications to me, more rampant speculations, which I won't go into, suggesting that that might have been the case. Any case, one answer, it seems to me, to the question why her published writings are not about the nuclear question is actually that, rather, they are all about that only obliquely, in the sense that they were ignited, to use that phrase again, by the atomic blast at Hiroshima, and, of course, totalitarianism, two things that she paired. But before she left the subject, she did go as far as to define what she believed was newly at stake in the nuclear age. And she noted that the nuclear bombs could knock down all the works of humanity in the sense of buildings and physical things and also kill lots of people, but that wasn't what was unique. It was indeed what she would later, but not at this time, call the common world. And I want to quote this passage in conclusion. What perishes in this case of nuclear war is not a world resulting from production, but one of action and speech created by human relationships, a world that never comes to an end and that, though spun of the most ephemeral stuff of fleeting words and quickly forgotten deeds, is of such incredible, enduring tenacity that under certain circumstances, as for example in the case of the Jewish people, it can outlive by centuries the loss of a palpable manufactured world. That, however, is the exception. And ordinarily this system of relationships established by action and which the past lives on in the form of history and that goes on speaking and being spoken about can exist only within the world produced by man nesting there in its stones until they too speak, and in speaking bear witness, even if we must first dig them out of the earth. This entire truly human world, which in a narrow sense forms the political realm, can indeed be destroyed by brute force, but it did not arise from force, and its inherent destiny is not to perish by force. Beautiful passage. Thank you. Jonathan has pointed to something that is very important in Aaron's work. You've pointed to several passages, Jonathan, where in the 1950s she says that the two great unprecedented events or phenomena of the mid-century are totalitarianism and the advent of hydrogen and atomic weapons. And actually she says this again and again, not just in that passage that you turn to here. That makes it even more important to ask exactly the question that you asked of... Here is the great theorist of, and student of totalitarianism, but why not of the other great question? Of course, you can see what a clever person she was uh, because she had the 
the good sense, knowing that she hadn't explored that question directly, to find exactly the right person to write the fate of the earth and take care of this topic directly. I think that you are precisely right that, in fact, everything that she did write in the 1950s, 60s, and on really is as much about the question of atomic weapons as it is about totalitarianism, because she's talking about the basic conditions of life on Earth and the two ways in which we have seen it destroyed. Once by the construction of a political regime, a novel form of government, and once by something which is directly designed to destroy politics. She felt that the novelty of totalitarianism as a form of government was that it was, for the first time in the history of the world, a form of government which had as its purpose to destroy politics. But the destruction of politics with the advent of atomic weapons was immediate. So everything that she writes is really about the conditions of life on Earth, of human life, that would be destroyed in an instant. But your question is really, so why not write about that directly, instead of the indirect way of putting a deep map of all that would be lost. Why approach it so indirectly and not as Jaspers did in the future of mankind directly? And I think that the answer to that question is not an explicitly biographical one because she didn't really, I think, operate that way by asking herself the question, well, has anybody taken this up? Or is, is there some, something left, as it were, for me to say here? Because I think she really uh, deeply felt and believed and was quite correct in believing so that there was no one who said things the way that she did. But the answer, I think, is, is something of a different way. That what the two phenomenon of totalitarianism and total war, which is the way that she described the existence of uh, atomic weapons, that this was the possibility of total war and it matched the total terror or the totalitarian government here. That when you have something that is total, your question about how to approach it is not, in her understanding, to be, as it were, within the phenomena, having a discussion about it. And those who were trying to think the unthinkable or be in the think tanks that considered the questions of atomic, were all caught up in theories of deterrence and mm -hmm. mutual assured destruction and on and on and on went this wild science fiction speak of the people who talked about nuclear... If you read the literature in the 1950s of people who were writing about a time, it's all Dr. Strangelove. So it was not to try to think into that and criticize it, but to think about all of the mm -hmm. conditions and possibilities for the opposition to this that exist in the new beginnings of human action, that would exist if we had a true understanding of what politics is and what action is. That if we had this, if we knew what it really was to act and begin anew, if we knew what it was to make political structures, democratic and republican structures that truly preserved politics, we would have the only antidote to the existence of the weapons themselves. She went for the productive side, as it were, thinking that if you got inside all of the discussion of nuclear, you would be inside the destructive vocabulary and lexicon and anti-political existence and thought of exactly what you wanted to oppose. So there's a constant appeal to what is the opposite, from whence salvation, from what human beings have in fact wrought, would come from human beings. And I think her judgment in that was right, because all who did try to talk about 
the existence of atomic weapons within the vocabulary of it, got caught in a basic problem that she spent a lot of time in the last years of her life thinking about. And the willing section of the life of the mind is all about this, that within our Western tradition, through the development of Christianity and into the modern world, we have come to think of freedom as a capacity to choose between this alternative and this alternative. That is, we've reduced our notion of human freedom to freedom of choice. And that's what all the people who talked about atomic weapons did. Like, we have a choice to have a doctrine of deterrence or a doctrine of we should have this many weapons or we should have this many weapons or we should have this kind of non-proliferation treaty or we have this or that. And on, as though the important thing there was to choose the right way to have these weapons. Her concept was of freedom was a different one altogether, and she thought it had been lost in the entire tradition of political theory in the West. And it was that freedom is the human capacity to change the world, that freedom is the human capacity to make something happen that has never happened before. It's the human capacity to begin or to do something new, not to choose between things that exist as though you could go this way and then there was this road that was not taken, and, uh, but to act in such a way that you would envision and move toward a world that had never existed. And she, she was very deeply in, indebted to the kind of thinking that Kant did about worlds that have not yet existed. It's an imaginative streak in her writing. One might call it, as R calls it, a poetic streak in her writing that I think it's hard to appreciate the significance of it. So all of that work that you rightly point out to that really is about the existence of nuclear weapons does it not by talking about that directly, but by talking about the human capacity to not have these weapons and not be headed on a path to total war. It's like, what are the conditions for that action? It is a very poetic strategy of approaching the deepest possibilities by indirection, if you, if you will. But the indirection has a purpose. It means don't get caught in this type of thinking, which is part of the problem in the first place. And her assumption is, if we had politics, if we truly had a political life, we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah. And she says also, it's, it's, it's interesting, because she begins to talk about this capacity of origination that in politics that you've just been mentioning. And she says that what's needed in the current situation, in the current impasse, the atomic and totalitarian, is a miracle. And she uses the word miracle. And then she says, but a miracle is something that you can actually expect in politics because it has this natality, this capacity to originate something new. It's as if she sees that what is needed is the sort of foundation of the miracle. Yeah. And so you can't be building the top story of the building first, and so that she had to go all the way down to the ground and start building right at the stones, you know, in that beautiful passage, the stones, in order to slowly build up something. And I think that's, ex I think that's exactly right. That accords with, with what I now believe. And I think it's so important that you point to this, you know, and that, that you raise this question, because another thing that I think is behind the strategy, if you can call it that, of indirection, is that Hannah Arendt was one of the few people that I ever encountered who absolutely felt that the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a tragic error, and that it should never have happened, and that there was no justification for it whatsoever. And she actually also felt this about the bombing of the German cities. I talked with her about this and 
several times, you know, because I was so impressed that she actually felt this. In America, to voice that opinion that what we had done in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was the demonstration of the assimilation of totalitarian elements into our own society was an opinion that you couldn't even speak that directly. So she spoke it very indirectly uh, over time to this day. You know how it is. In, the, well, in, the, in this know. essay, though yeah. unpublished, she actually refers to it as a war crime. A war crime. And in yes. her, yeah. on her lips, those uh, uh, words That's a have serious, weight. serious thing. She raises the question in the um, 1950 piece about Europe and the atom bomb. She raises the question about why did we not demonstrate the power of this weapon, reveal it. This is her political vocabulary. Reveal the power of this weapon by dropping it on the ocean, dropping it on an uninhabited island, making a demonstration of what it was that we possessed. Why did we not do that? And in her mind, that would have been a political decision to make a revelation of your power in a kind of classic way, that you go onto the battlefield with your shield and your spear and speak your father's name, and, and you don't actually fight until everybody has had a chance, as it were, to see what the demonstrations of power are all about. She was very embedded in this kind of classical notion of, of warfare and realized that when you did something like destroy millions of people and cities, not armies, but civilian populations with a weapon like this that you had stepped outside of the definition of war. And her most basic understanding of a crime against humanity, and that's what the Eichmann book is really all about, is that this is a crime against the plurality of human existence, meaning it's an ultimate reduction of the different people, a plural people, to a mass and a complete denial of the individuality of any of them. And you can see behind, this is the description of what we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And to talk that way in the 1950s about what we had done would really have been impossible. So I think she did the other strategy to talk about all of what you need in the way of a political life to make sure that you don't get into a condition where you cannot have real discourse about what you are doing. We recently have found ourselves in a similar situation in this country where we cannot have real discourse about what we really have done in Iraq, which is a massive assault upon a civilian population, shock and awe upon a civilian population. We cannot even really discuss it because we have lost the, the conditions of political life that make that discourse possible. It's a completely analogous, though on a smaller scale, situation. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.